Welcome to Dig Deep. My name is Peggy, and I am a member of um, the small group leadership team here at Dig Deep. And those of you that know me know that I care deeply about God's heart for the world, and I love doing missions. And a few, few years ago, I was part of a medical missions team in Ecuador. And I had been told when I signed up that this team would be extreme, all capital letters, extreme, and that our team of 11 people would be carrying everything we needed into the jungle. Um, we would be filtering water to drink and stringing up hammocks at night to sleep, and we'd be walking from one remote clinic or one remote village to another to provide medical and dental care. And some of you may be thinking that I was crazy for signing up for that, but I loved everything about that plan. It was right up my alley. And I had camped, roughing it camped, not glamping at camping, many times. And this was not my first medical team, not my first time in a developing country. And so I was really confident. I had prepared, I was in shape, I had taken long, strenuous hikes with my backpack full of textbooks and water. I had done three months of insanity workouts in the basement with my husband, hours and hours whipping, my shape, whipping myself into hiking in the jungle shape, and I was ready. At least I thought I was ready. But then fast forward and drop our team in the jungle, and it took one hour on the first day for it to sink in that hiking with a pack in Maryland was exactly nothing like hiking in the rainy jungles of Ecuador. And I could take this entire talk to describe the craziness that was those five days. But I'm gonna skip to the end. We had been hiking farther into the jungle every day. So we'd do like four hours, then clinic and stay, and then six hours clinic, five hours clinic. And our last hike to the last village was supposed to be about six hours long, and it ended up stretching into 10. It was humid, it was oppressively hot, it was periodically pouring, and I mean pouring rain. Our team kept having to distribute gear around because one of our teammates was getting violently ill and we didn't want him to have to carry anything. We kept having to cross, uh, cross these slippery log bridges that were covered in slime and moss and we'd have to hold these tree branches as poles to balance. And for the last half of the hike, the last five hours, there was no trail at all. The guides were just using machetes to cut a path through the jungle. And we had two water filtration systems. We had our first one and we had our backup, um, but they both clogged and we were just having to shock the water, the river water that we were drinking with iodine tablets. And after nine hours, it became increasingly clear that we still had a ways to go and it was getting really dark. I was exhausted and not a little frightened because sleeping in the middle of the jungle was a terrible, terrible idea and not really an option. And there was one thing that pretty much summed up that day for me. There were a few Ecuadorian women that were traveling with us and they were generally either at the front or at the back. And honestly, like I was so tunnel vision, I just had my head down that I didn't really notice them that much. But at one point, about seven hours in, I happened to be next to one of them and I noticed that she was wearing jellies. Okay, I know I'm dating myself here, but you guys remember jellies? For those of you that may not be familiar with them, they are these like brightly colored, soft plastic, translucent, always a little sparkly shoes. Okay, they were real popular back in the 80s. They're basically cheap plastic flats, and they are less suitable for jungle hiking than Crocs. And she was wearing jellies in the jungle while carrying about 30 pounds of gear, including some of mine and my team's, and she was barely breathing and not even sweating. And I have to be honest, watching her confidently navigate that jungle path in those jellies just about did me in. 
They were mocking me, those jellies. I had my fancy gear and my well-laid plans and my oh-so-thorough preparation. And every time I looked at her shoes, something in me just sunk a little bit lower. I've never felt so humbled in my entire life. Despite all the pride I had taken in my preparations, getting into shape, or what I thought was shape, having the right water filters, the right gear, all kinds of experience roughing it, it became overwhelmingly obvious to me that I was only going to get out of the jungle if God chose to physically deliver me out of it. And honestly, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I just truly have never felt anything with such certainty in my life before or since. I was humbled. Now, for the past four weeks, we've been tracking the life of a young man named Joseph, and at our current place in his story, I think it's fair to say that Joseph has been humbled. When we last left him, he had been in prison for an indeterminate amount of time. He'd landed there after being falsely accused of sexual assault by Potiphar's wife. Prior to that, he'd been betrayed and sold into slavery by his brothers. In Genesis 40, we learn that he had accurately interpreted the dreams of two of his fellow prisoners and had asked one of them, the cupbearer, to remember him to Pharaoh so that he could be released. And that chapter ended, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And the next verse is, after two whole years. And Jess talked last week about how Joseph did not dwell on the past or long for the future without also being present in his circumstances and choosing to serve. He was leveraging his gifts and talents as he basically ran the prison and cared for his fellow prisoners. But in Genesis 41, where we're going to be today, after two whole years, Joseph is still waiting, serving, and wondering. And we learn that Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, has two dreams. So we're going to begin in verse 2. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, And stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream." So Pharaoh's spirit is troubled, and he calls for all the magicians and all the wise men in Egypt so that they can come and interpret the dreams, but no one can do it. So after all that, the cupbearer remembers his offenses and tells Pharaoh, there's a young Hebrew in prison that can interpret dreams. So Joseph is brought out of prison, which, as Jess explained to us, was literally a dungeon that was dug out of the ground. So we don't know exactly how long he'd been there overall, but we do know that it had been two whole years since he thought he had a legitimate chance of getting out. He's brought to Pharaoh with haste. He's only given time to be clean and shaved. And I keep wondering, like, what do you think his mindset was at that point? I've tried to imagine being in his shoes, and if I'm honest, my first thought would be, don't let me screw this up. This is my chance to get out of here. I think my instinct would be to do everything I could to prove myself, to prove my worth by showing what I was capable of. Look at Joseph's background. His brothers betrayed him. Potiphar's wife and that whole household betrayed him. The cupbearer forgot him. So it would have been understandable if Joseph had closed ranks a little bit, if he had thought, if I'm going to get out of this, I need to do this on my own. Pharaoh, I can definitely interpret the dream for you. Bring it on. Let me tell you what it means. 
I don't know if you've ever experienced the feeling of, if it's going to be right, I just need to do it myself. I do this all the time. I do it at work. I do it at home. No one else folds the laundry as well as I do or knows how to load the dishwasher as efficiently as I do. I'm the most experienced at planning trips, <laughs> so I should probably organize all the days of our vacation. I was an English major, so I should probably handle that cover letter. You want to plan the Christmas menu? Uh, I do most of the cooking, so I should probably be the one to do that. And there's an arrogance to this, isn't there? When I think to myself that so-and-so can't handle that as well as I can, that I'm the only one capable of X, Y, and Z, I'm really making a statement about how I perceive my own abilities and the abilities of other people around me. And way too often, I view myself as more capable, more suitable to a given task. And when something seemingly important is on the line, my instinct to control and to pridefully insist on my own way goes into overdrive. It's especially strong. But thankfully, at this point, Joseph is not like me. When Pharaoh says, I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it, Joseph answers Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It is not in me. Now, this is Joseph's big break. He's been brought out of the pit, out of the ground, and dropped in front of the one man who has the power to, to kill him, to release him from prison, to throw him back in the pit. And the first words out of his mouth literally equate to, I can't do it. But he follows it with the claim that God can. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. His attitude at this point is one of dependence on God and of humility. Humility is a word that gets thrown around a lot in our culture, in our culture and generally it is a characteristic that is respected and admired. The word comes from the root humilitas, which means low, as in low to the ground. Humility, humble, humiliation, all of these words share the same root. And if you search, definitions of humility include a modest opinion or estimation of one's own importance, freedom from pride and arrogance. And we often define and can certainly recognize humility by what it is not, right? It's not pride. It's not arrogance. It's not assuming that my way is the right and only way. It is not haughtiness, imperiousness, loftiness, self-importance. A man named John Dixon wrote, the book, wrote a book called Humilitas, and he defines it as the noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources, and use your influence for the good of others before yourself. The noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. He goes on to explain, humility presupposes a person's dignity. The one being humble acts from a height, so to speak, as the lowering etymology makes clear. True humility assumes the dignity or the strength of the one possessing the virtue, which is why it should not be confused with having low self-esteem or being a doormat. Humility is willing. It is a choice. Otherwise, it is humiliation or humbling. At this moment in his life, I believe Joseph knows the difference between humility and humiliation. He is no longer the brash 17-year-old Joseph. He has been humbled, unwillingly brought low. He was the lavishly favored child who was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. He was the successful caretaker of his master's house who was wrongly accused and imprisoned. He was the interpreter of dreams who was forgotten by, for two whole years by someone who he had helped. He has gone from high to low multiple times and not willingly. But now, Joseph chooses humility. He tells Pharaoh that it's not in him to interpret the dreams, but that God can do it. 
After Pharaoh explains his dreams, Joseph responds like this. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will bring it shortly about. In other words, the fact that there were two dreams indicating the same thing means that the events, the years of plenty followed by the years of famine, are definitely happening, and soon. These dreams indicate major historic events for Egypt. There are life and death ramifications for an entire nation. So to say that there is a lot at stake would be a massive understatement. Joseph would have known this as soon as Pharaoh told him the dreams. Think about the power that he's holding at this moment. He knows that no one else in Egypt has been able to explain the dreams to Pharaoh. He knows the significance and the potential repercussions of them. He has a huge bargaining chip. He has enormous leverage. He could try to negotiate his release first. He could tell Pharaoh that the dreams are of dreadful importance and that he will be glad to share their meaning if you can fill in the blank. If you release me, if you return me to my father, if you punish the cupbearer for forgetting me, if you jail Potiphar's wife for falsely accusing me, if you give me land and wealth and status, Joseph has suddenly gone from the bottom of the pit to a place of potential power, but he responds with humility. The noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Instead of holding his cards close to his chest and of using this precious information as a way to better his own situation, he lays it all out. And then he goes on to share in detail what Pharaoh should do. Let's pick up. We're in verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food for the cities and let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. I love that Joseph does not insert himself into the solution. He does not say as he could, God has told me what he is about to do. I have divined that this is what God meant in your dreams. Let me tell you what to do about it, and let me tell you what part I should play. He doesn't demand or even request the job or take credit for the explanation. After the many betrayals Joseph has suffered, this is kind of surprising. But we have to remember the entire context of Joseph's story. Despite the trials and despite the betrayals, God has been with him the entire time. Even after God allowed him to be brought low, he was with him. Remember when he was in Potiphar's house, and back in chapter 39, the Lord was with Joseph. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. After he was thrown in prison, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. The Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Joseph has experienced God's faithfulness even in his wretched circumstances and has learned to trust that if he's going to stay out of prison, it's going to be because of God's doing and not his own. Still, we need to stop here and recognize how extraordinary Joseph's posture would have seemed to those around him. 
Although humility is generally lauded as a character trait today, this was not the case in Joseph's time. To purposefully lower oneself, to not boast, to not take credit, particularly in a situation that would seem to warrant it, would have been radical. Socially, Joseph was in a much different position than Pharaoh, and it would have been appropriate for him to humble himself based on that. But the fact was that he had valuable information. Those around him wouldn't see him just as the messenger, but also as the source of that information. And in Joseph's time, expecting and claiming honor based on merit was the norm. Joseph provided crucial information when no one else could, and it would have been reasonable, expected probably, for him to assume a posture of importance and to have an expectation of a reward. But instead, Joseph chose humility. Several thousand years later, another young Hebrew chose the same. Jesus Christ was the ultimate example of humility. He was fully God, fully perfect, fully worthy of all adoration and praise and worship, on earth and in heaven, and but he humbled himself and became a servant. Over and over, he chose to forgo his status, deploy his resources, and use his influence for the good of others before himself. He was willing to do things that everyone around him would have considered beneath him. He was willing to minister to lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, and he exhorted others to be humble. In Matthew 23, Luke 14, Luke 18, he told Pharisees and disciples and the crowds following him that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. But Jesus didn't just talk about humility. In John 13, we read of Jesus sharing a meal with his disciples. It is the night before he is crucified. He knows he's going to be betrayed by Judas. He knows he's going to be handed over, tortured, and killed, and yet he chooses to show deep love and to model humility for his disciples by washing their feet. It is really hard for us to understand, living today, how unthinkable that would have been back then. The disciples' feet would have been filthy, smelly, dusty, and washing other people's feet was a job relegated to the lowest of servants. Yet here was Jesus, pouring the water himself, taking his towel, towel literally lowering himself down to the ground to clean the feet of his disciples, not because they deserved it or earned it, but because he loved them. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others more important than yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Some Bible versions translate that last line as he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus emptied himself of all of his power and all of his rights when he chose to wash his disciples' feet, and infinitely more so when he chose to die on the cross. In Jesus' time, there were three official methods of capital punishment. Decapitation, burning alive, and crucifixion. Those were the three. Crucifixion was considered the most brutal, the most shameful, and the most humiliating. It was generally saved for slaves and political rebels. For every other person who died by crucifixion, this was a forced humiliation. But Jesus chose to humble himself. 
He did not use his power or his knowledge or his abilities to save himself, but willingly suffered and died for the sake of you and of me, that through faith in him and the power of his death and resurrection, we might have eternal life. And there has never been a greater act of love or humility. Now in that context and with thousands of years of hindsight, we can look back at Joseph and at the way he responded to Pharaoh, at the way he put the future of thousands in Egypt ahead of his own interest, and say that he exercised a Christ-like humility. Joseph freely interprets the dreams and details the solution to the land's upcoming crisis. His humility, the way he answers, prompts Pharaoh to turn to his servants and say, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Pharaoh recognizes something special and different in Joseph. He sees something of the divine in him. At 17, Joseph was probably a bit full of himself. We've all used that term, right? Well, describe someone who is arrogant or prideful or self-absorbed as being full of himself or full of herself. When we are full of ourselves, of our pride, our self-interest, our entitlements, our desires, we don't leave any room to be full of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. But the older Joseph has humbled himself. He's emptied himself to the point that the Spirit of God was in him, to the point that Pharaoh could recognize it. And this was so convicting to me this week. It's really challenging because I have to wonder, when people look at me, what do they see? Do they see the Spirit of God? Sometimes they probably do, and sometimes not so much. Sometimes they see my desire to be right, my desire to be recognized, my desire to be appreciated. They see my pride and my accomplishments, my desire to get credit, my stubbornness and my refusal to admit when I'm wrong. But Pharaoh saw the Spirit of God in Joseph, and he was pleased. He said, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. 1 Peter 5, 5 to 6 says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up in due time. Joseph waited for two full years before the cupbearer remembered him to Pharaoh if he'd gotten released on his own timing, which I'm guessing would have been immediately or yesterday, maybe he would have just gone back to his father. He would have tried to reunite with his family. But God's timing was that he be released in order to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and to be exalted in a way that would save thousands of lives. He was humbled, he responded with humility, and he was exalted in God's perfect timing. And when I read that, I think, that's great for Joseph. In reality... The inability to nail down the in due time, or as it is sometimes translated, at the proper time, can be absolutely excruciating for me. Um, to give an example, my husband, Chris, worked for the same company for over 20 years. And during every one of those years, I struggled every day to come to terms with his boss. I felt that this man operated without integrity in many ways and was arrogant and manipulative and self-serving. To me, he defined selfish ambition and vain conceit. And my husband had to deal with him every single day. For 20 years, I waited for this man to be humbled. I longed for it. Chris, who, if you know him, is not perfect by any stretch, but he really struggled to operate with humility and integrity in the presence of this person who had authority over him. And as his spouse, I struggled along with him. I waited for people higher up in the company to see what I saw and to correct it. I wanted Chris to be exalted or appreciated or at least acknowledged. 
But much to my disappointment, my anger, and my frustration, that never really happened. In fact, I watched as this other man was given more accolades, more money, more recognition, all the while my husband just continued on beneath him. He was making a fine living, and God was more than providing for our family. But we really both struggled with, when, God, when will you humble this man? When will he be knocked off his pedestal? It just seemed so unfair. My husband left that company and came on staff here at our church about nine months ago, which I have to tell you was a lifting up that I was unspeakably grateful for. I still am. And the timing of all of it now makes complete sense to me. Those years with his previous company, some of which felt like time in a pit for our family for sure, readied and prepared him for what God has him doing now. I can say this now, but let me tell you there were times of kicking and screaming and wanting to claw out of it while we were in it. And as far as that coworker is concerned, that boss, he is still on that earthly pedestal, and it still eats at me. I still long for him to be humbled, even though I know without question that God is exhorting me to humble myself, not to work on humbling others. But I have to admit, it's hard to exercise humility when I feel like it would be easier or more rewarding or more fair if I were to push to the front or to boast or to look out for myself when I feel like no one else is, especially when I'm in a pit and not feeling that God is with me or when I feel like I need to earn my way out of something on my own merit. My head knows that God is with me and I can list Bible verses that tell me so, but sometimes my heart just doesn't feel it. Maybe some of you have struggled with that. So how do we choose humility? If humility is, as it is often said, not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less, how do we choose that when everything in us is screaming the opposite? Will Walker and Kendall Haig address this in their devotional, Journey to the Cross. They say, we are to think of ourselves with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, Romans 12.3. In other words, the humble person knows who he is and whose he is, This is the secret to Jesus' remarkable humility. Even as a child, Jesus was about his father's business. People always questioned his identity, but he was not thrown off by their doubt or their criticism. He did not need the approval of people because he was rooted in the words that came down from heaven. You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Mark 1.11 In contrast to pride and fear, the humility we see in Jesus is marked by dependence and marked by confidence. If we aspire to walk in this path, we will have to think with sober judgment. We will have to be clear-eyed about who we are and whose we are. The gospel tells us who we are. We are made in the image of God, created in his likeness for his glory. This truth speaks to both our dignity and our dependence. Before and after the fall, people need God in every aspect of life, For in him we live and move and have our being. Acts 18.28 The gospel tells us whose we are. We belong to God, body and soul. He is our maker and our father. I love their statement that Jesus was about his father's business. Jesus himself said the most important of his father's commands are to love God and love one another. Micah 6.8 reminds us, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? When we are confident and rooted in our identity, in who we are and in whose we are, it gives us the freedom to be about our Father's business, and we can do it without fear of missing out on what we think we deserve and without pride that demands to be recognized. I want so badly to be about my Father's business, 
and know that in some areas I'm on the right path and in others I need to change my posture and walk humbly. When I think back to that time in Ecuador, to that 10-hour hike through the jungle, I remember being brought from a place of confident pride in my abilities to a deep, deep, deep low, and not willingly. I was humbled by the path, by the weight of my pack, by that woman's shoes. I remember thinking, God, I cannot walk another step. As Joseph said, it is not in me. Thankfully, on that day, God chose to deliver me from my pit. I stumbled along with the rest of the team, delirious, through the tree line into this tiny Quechua village with about 15 minutes of discernible light left in the sky. I remember just dumping my pack off and walking fully clothed into the river and just crying and thanking God for preserving me despite myself. I was definitely humbled that day and in hundreds of ways and in hundreds of days since. Parenting, to give an example that will be obvious to anyone who has children, is like a master's level class in humility that I keep failing and having to retake every single day. But I'm grateful that God gives me chances to, every single day to choose humility in ways both large and small. It might mean giving up a dream job or putting it on hold because it's better for my family that I stay home for a time. It might mean using a kind tone with my daughter even though she has used a disrespectful one with me. And every fiber of my being wants to use my parental power to just put her in her place. It might mean just lugging the trash down to the curb with a good attitude, even though it's not supposed to be my turn, or quietly cleaning up after other people in my office, even though it's not technically my job and I know I won't get recognized for it. What does the Lord require? To love him and love others, to do justice, love kindness, walk humbly, to forgo our status, deploy our resources, use our influence for the good of others before ourselves. We have examples in Joseph and in our precious Savior, Jesus. As we move forward and discuss in our groups, I want us to consider what humility looks like for us. I want to give you a few discussion points for your group time so that you're able to talk about it. Um, the first one is what relationship or role has been the most humbling for you and why? What relationship or role has been the most humbling for you? And is there an area in your life where you might need to humble yourself or empty yourself? And practically, that's always the fun part, right? What would that look like? Let me close us. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are so gracious to us. And um, even when we are in the pit, we know sometimes in our head, sometimes in our heart, hopefully both, we always know that you are there, that you are faithful, and that you are working things in our lives for good, even if we can't see it. And God, I just thank you so much for Joseph's and Jesus's examples of humility, of lowering themselves, um, not using their influence for their own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And God, that we might um, take that posture today in our relationships can be so hard, um, even just in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. It's just easy to move on and do what we want to do for ourselves. But God, I just pray that we would look to do our Father's business and um, to walk humbly. So thank you, God, for Jesus, for loving us so much that you would give him to us and give, him, um, give us the example in his humility. We are so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.